The captains walked through the heavy brush with a small group of men behind them. They had left the others back at the boat on the river, a river that had caused them more trouble than they ever could have expected. They had just had a tense and difficult engagement with the local tribe, and it had lowered their spirits considerably. The captains were beginning to doubt the entire enterprise by this point. Was all of this even worth it? Should we just go back? Why should we keep going? These questions tormented them as they trudged on. But as soon as they exited the brush, these troubling questions vanished like smoke. The sight before them nearly sent them to their knees. No one from their young nation had beheld such magnificence. Until this moment, this small group standing in the endless prairie had never known the world could possess such remarkable wonders. The captains looked at each other and nodded in agreement without any words being spoken. This was worth it. The lands are extremely fertile exhibiting one of the most beautiful scenes I have ever beheld. This immense river waters one of the fairest portions of the globe, nor do I believe that there is, in this universe, a similar extent of country. As we passed on, it seemed as if those scenes of visionary enchantment would never have an end. Meriwether Lewis, 1804-1805 Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. In this season, we'll take an in-depth look at one of the most famous expeditions in American history, the Lewis and Clark Expedition. In each episode, we'll highlight key virtues exemplified by the core of discovery and give a truly unique perspective of this incredible American adventure. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short, yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. In this episode, we will follow the core of discovery as they make their way upriver to the Indian villages and see firsthand how the virtues of hospitality, discipline, curiosity, and posterity worked among the men to see them through extreme difficulties from both man and nature alike. Quotes from the expedition journals are cited throughout this episode. For listener clarity and narrative coherence, some of these quotes have been revised. Welcome to Episode 2, Up the Mighty Missouri. May 13, 1804. 
Clark made a journal entry describing the last of the supplies and the condition of the men and keelboat. The following day, after endless delays and unforeseen problems, the Corps of Discovery had begun its mission toward the Pacific Ocean. Like the great explorers before them, Lewis and Clark were now under no higher command and free to lead as they saw fit. It was to its time what a voyage to an unknown planet would be to our present time. Despite having a map that led to the Mandan villages in lower North Dakota, the land from there to the coast was uncharted territory. The group was filled with men who were highly capable, yet they had no way of knowing if their exceptional skills and talents would be enough once they stepped off the map. The captains expected to be gone at least two years, but they and the rest of the men must have known that death was a very real, even likely, possibility. Yet to this small group of men, the need to discover, the need to be tested, the need to take risks, and the need for adventure was worth the cost. One week later, Lewis wrote the official detachment orders, which assembled the chain of command on the keelboat, and which of the sergeants the men were to report to. After this point, and for reasons not fully understood, Lewis barely wrote in his journal until April of 1805, when he finally resumed daily entries. Author and historian Larry Morris. I think that for those gaps, he probably did not write anything. For one period, we know for sure why he didn't write, and that was on the return. Uh, Lewis and Clark weren't united at that time. They were traveling separately, and Lewis was out hunting with uh, one of the men by the name of Pierre Cruzat, and uh, Cruzat accidentally shot Lewis right in the rear. You know, it was a relatively minor wound, still very painful. And so he was at, he was out of commission there. And so that was the reason that he wasn't writing at that time. And I don't believe that we have any entries for him after that. As for the other times when he uh, didn't write, that's a matter of speculation. The boat continued its slow pace up the Missouri. They passed a number of French settlements and frontier villages as they pressed on. One of these had been founded by legendary frontiersman Daniel Boone, leading some historians to wonder whether the three titans of American history ever met. The month of May turned out to be cold and wet, with Clark noting multiple days of rainfall. During this time, he developed a cold, sore throat, and headaches that lasted into June, but he nonetheless continued his duties. While Clark stayed on the boat, Lewis spent most of the time on shore, scouting the river ahead and gathering samples of flora and fauna. Clark was the better boatman, and Lewis was the better naturalist. It was one of many examples of how the men's strengths complemented the other. These pleasant walks, however, were not without peril. In one frightening episode, Lewis slipped and plunged down the steep sides of the embankment, nearly losing his life. This was barely into the second day of the expedition. The hunting proved to be very good, with the men regularly bringing back deer, geese, beavers, bears, and other animals. Numerous berries, wild grapes, and plums were everywhere. The deer were as plentiful as the birds. The hunting was so good that each man could eat nine pounds of meat per day and still be hungry. Clark's slave, York, 
who was experiencing a freedom out in the wild like no other slave of his day, participated in these hunting excursions. Having grown up with Clark and learned how to hunt at a young age, he was likely an excellent shot. Patrick Gass recorded York taking down two buffalo when they reached the Great Plains, and Clark noted on June 5th that York swam to a sandbar to gather edible plant life. At nighttime, Lewis and Clark made celestial navigations and observations. On June 14th, Clark noted that George Drouillard, who is often referred to as Drewer in the journals, had an encounter with a mysterious snake inside a pond. He heard in the pond a snake making gobbling noises, like a turkey. He fired his gun, and the noise was increased. He has heard the Indians mention the species of snake. One Frenchman gives a similar account. It is unknown what the creature was, but it certainly was not a snake, as no such snake exists. It would not be the first or last time the Corps of Discovery encountered strange and unknown wildlife. The days grew hotter as it moved into July. Navigating the river proved to be very difficult. They were only able to cover 10 miles a day on average, and were fortunate if they made 20 miles a day. Sometimes entire trees floated down the river, threatening to crush the boat. When the keelboat was stuck in shallow waters, the men often had to go ashore and pull it along with ropes. It was brutal, back-breaking work. It must have seemed to the men that the river had a mind, a strength, and a will all its own. Some of the men also continued to show the same lack of discipline as they had in St. Louis. John Collins broke into the whiskey supply and got drunk with the aid of Hugh Hall, one of the men who had caused trouble back in winter. Unfortunately for both men, they did this while on guard duty. After being court-martialed, the men were tied to a post and given lashes on their bare backs. These were administered with a cat of nine tails, a whip consisting of nine cords with nine knots per cord. Collins received a hundred lashes, and Hall received fifty. Private Alexander Willard of New Hampshire would receive one of the harshest punishments of the entire journey. He was court-martialed in mid-July for sleeping on guard duty, an extremely serious crime in the military. Though Willard claimed he had lain down but not fallen asleep, Lewis and Clark found him guilty. He received a brutal sentence of 100 lashes each night for four nights. As harsh as it was, it was just and necessary. The men were entering hostile territory, and an Indian raid was a very real threat. When it came to dealing with the Indians, Lewis and Clark wanted diplomacy, not battle. From the beginning, the expedition was planned as if it were a military operation. A lack of discipline among the Corps simply could not be tolerated. Despite these disciplinary breaches, the men remained loyal and hardworking. They were slowly but surely making their way up the Missouri and getting closer to the Mandan villages every day. Clark made detailed notes of the plant life in the landscape, while Lewis continued to make celestial observations at night. He also administered his medical skills whenever the men had ailments. One area of suffering the men all had in common was the mosquitoes. Anticipating them beforehand, Lewis had purchased netting and mixtures of tallow and hog's lard as repellent. In order to escape their ravages, the men huddled near the smoke of their campfires and coated their bare skin in the thick grease and lard. 
Clark observed on a day-by-day -day basis how they became more and more intolerable, frequently using the word troublesome. In one entry, Clark wrote, The mosquitoes were so bad in the prairies that without the assistance of a bush, I could not keep them out of my eyes. Lewis's dog was so bothered by the insects that he sometimes howled in pain all night. Though the men experienced numerous trials on the river, there were still many joys and beauties to be found. One can imagine the Corps gathering around the campfires with the day's kills roasting over the flames, drinking whiskey, telling stories, cracking jokes, and everything men do when they are in the wild, unshackled from society. <laughs> the climate and the scenery was changing, and Clark constantly noted how beautiful the landscape was. Lewis was making new discoveries seemingly every day, finding and describing plants and animals new to science, and satisfying his endlessly curious nature all the time. The Corps were the first to discover and describe for science the prairie dog, pronghorn, white-tailed jackrabbit, black-billed magpie, bull snake, and many others. They were also the first Americans to see a coyote and many different aquatic birds and fish. Few botanists and naturalists could dare to dream of the opportunities Lewis had, and he seemed to know it. No other American knew at the time that their young nation possessed such wild, untamed, and unfathomable beauty. No American would ever again have the privilege to behold it with virgin eyes. The scenery, already rich and beautiful, was further heightened by the immense herds of buffalo, deer, elk, and antelope, which we saw in every direction, feeding on the hills and plains. I do not think I exaggerate when I estimate the number of buffalo which could be comprehended in one view to amount to 3,000. Meriwether Lewis Captain Lewis and myself walked to the hill from the top of which we had a beautiful prospect of the surrounding country, the most beautiful which I had ever beheld. The river meandering, the open and beautiful plains interspersed with groves of timber, for me to mention or give an estimate of the different species of wild animals on the river, particularly buffalo, elk, antelopes, and wolves, would be indescribable. I shall therefore be silent on the subject further. A very pleasant breeze from the southwest. William Clark On July 4th, the men fired the cannon on the keelboat in celebration of the nation's 28th birthday. It was the first time the 4th had been celebrated west of the Mississippi. As they approached August, the Corps had not yet encountered any Indian tribes. They had been informed that most of the tribes were hunting buffalo in the plains and prairies away from the river. Nonetheless, they still prepared the gifts and presents in anticipation of the coming encounters. Lewis turned 30 years old on August 18th and an extra round of whiskey went around. Clark himself had turned 34 a few weeks prior. Unfortunately, a tragedy would befall the Corps the following day. Charles Floyd, whom the captains held in high regard, began experiencing sharp internal pains. York looked after him dutifully, but his condition still continued to worsen. He was diagnosed with bilious colic, but it was very likely a burst appendix. Sadly, there was nothing that could be done to save the sergeant. 
He died quietly and was buried on the evening of August 20th beside a small river that still bears his name today. Floyd was the first casualty of the Lewis and Clark expedition. This man at all times gave us proofs of his firmness and determined resolution to do service to his country and honor to himself. After paying all the honor to our deceased brother, we camped in the mouth of Floyd's River about 30 yards wide. A beautiful evening. William Clark. The next day, Patrick Gass was given the rank of sergeant as a replacement for Floyd by popular vote, the first vote held west of the Mississippi. The Corps of Discovery continued to press on against the current of the mighty Missouri. They killed their first bison and passed a large hill known as Spirit Mound, a place that the tribes in the region believed to be haunted by devils. The men, of course, decided to ascend it. They retreated to a spectacular view of herds of buffalo, numerous flocks of birds, and a rolling plain as far as the eye could see. Despite the great beauty of the land, the Corps of Discovery had now entered Indian territory. With the exception of the Sioux and the Mandan, little to nothing was known about the tribes of the plains except by a few French and British trappers. The last thing the Corps wanted was a fight, but they knew that it was a very real possibility. The first tribe the Corps encountered was the Otos. They had once been a powerful people, but smallpox outbreaks, the scourge of Indians across the plains, had reduced their size and influence considerably. Lewis and Clark managed to win them over with their meager gifts and speeches, which proclaimed that they were now part of the United States and could look to their great new father, Thomas Jefferson, for protection. The captains also gave them a medal, showing Jefferson's likeness on one side and two hands shaking on the other. They would give these medals to every tribe they encountered on the route. The Otos accepted the news and their gifts, despite wanting more than what Lewis and Clark were prepared to offer. Though things had gone fairly smoothly with the Otos, they were not sure the same could be said for the Sioux. They had a reputation so fierce that even Jefferson and others in Washington knew of them. Author and historian Ellen Woodger it's important to know that the Great Plains provided a home to more than two dozen Indian nations, as well as the buffalo, deer, and antelope that provided food for those nations. The buffalo, of course, being the most important of these. The Plains Indians were originally farmers who grew crops like maize, but after the Spanish introduced horses to North America, many nations became nomadic hunter-gatherers, while others remained crop growers and traders like the Mandan and Hidatsa. Settled tribes were more likely to be peaceful, but so were numerous nomadic nations. But as always, you know, there were exceptions. The Teton Sioux, which were, who were also called the Lakota, were originally woodland Indians who had moved west in the mid-1700s, and they proliferated on the plains. They lived within a broad area that was rich with buffalo and furs, giving them an advantage over other tribes. They maintained small herbs, herds of horses, but had enough to hunt effectively and to meet and do business with French Canadian and American traders. But whereas other branches of Sioux, such as the Dakota and the Nakota, were largely peaceful, settled people, the Lakota, the Teton Sioux, became warriors, using force to exert their dominance over other Plains Indians. 
Hunting, raiding, and warfare were integral to their culture, and when they traded, it was often with the purpose of obtaining weapons from Amer Europeans and Americans. Uh, Lewis and Clark made a number of mistakes in their attempts to broker peace with the Teton Sioux. For one thing, during an important council, they didn't fully understand Indian protocol and showed favoritism to one chief over another, not knowing the two chiefs were engaged in a power struggle. For another, the gifts they offered were received with disdain. What the Sioux really wanted were the goods that were kept in the expedition's canoes. Finally, Lewis and Clark tried to engage the Lakota in a trading network that would be based in St. Louis, but this only threatened the Sioux, who were determined to maintain control of trade along the middle and upper Missouri River. All this resulted in extreme friction between the explorers and the Indians, and obviously a failure to achieve peace. On September 23rd, near what is present-day Pierre, South Dakota, three teenage Sioux swam across the river toward the men. George Drulliard, who was an expert in Indian Sign Language, communicated that the Corps of Discovery would meet with the chiefs the following day. They arrived and offered their speeches, medals, and gifts, using Drulliard and Pierre Crusat to translate. The Sioux were not impressed by the meager gifts, but very impressed with the keelboat. For a tribe that had only seen canoes, it was an impressive sight. The captains offered a tour of the keelboat and shots of whiskey, which they eagerly accepted. But when they refused to go back to shore, some Sioux warriors grabbed the tow line and refused to let go. Clark drew his sword, while Lewis mounted the swivel cannon. The Indians notched their arrows, and the Corps loaded their guns. But before violence could break out, a chief named Black Buffalo stepped forward and put a stop to the situation. After calling the warriors back, he told Clark he could anchor beside the shore of his village if they could come and see the keelboat. Clark accepted without hesitation. The entire expedition had almost come to ruin in this one tense encounter. For the next few days, the Corps stayed in Black Buffalo's village. The Sioux had just had a victorious battle with the Omaha tribe, and the captains saw the wretched prisoners detained in the camp. In the evening, they witnessed what was known as a scalp dance, in which the Sioux celebrated their recent victory by dancing and brandishing the freshly cut scalps of their enemies. Despite this grisly display, the music and dancing were pleasing to the men. The captains were even offered women as bed partners, but they refused. After two days, they wanted to get moving. The Sioux kept asking them to stay one more day, but the captains insisted they get moving. After much arguing about paying a toll to keep going up the river, Lewis angrily gave them presents of tobacco. The Sioux let them go. Another potentially violent confrontation had been avoided. Though the prospect of encountering the Sioux again on their return journey loomed in their minds, for the moment they could rest at ease. The tired, weary, and nervous men of the Corps were finally on their way. Clark often noted in his journal that he had a rather low opinion of the tribe. These are the vilest miscreants of the savage race, and must ever remain pirates of the Missouri until such a measure as pursued by our government as will make them feel a dependence on its will for their supply of merchandise. It was now October, and things briefly returned to normal. 
one of the men encountered and wounded a large bear before fleeing in fear at its large size. It was the first time the Corps encountered a grizzly. It would be far from the last. Clark experienced what he described as painful rheumatism in the neck, which lasted into November. The hunting still proved to be fruitful, and Lewis continued making scientific discoveries. He would sometimes walk 30 miles out into the open plains on these excursions, no doubt at peace and enjoying himself. The Corps next encountered the Arikara tribe along the river. Relations with them proved to be much more peaceful. Some of the Corps were fluent in the language, and there was even a white man who had lived in the Arikara village for 13 years, which made communication significantly easier. The usual ritual of gifts and speeches ensued, and the men stayed with the tribe. Clark wrote that the Arikaras were especially fascinated by York. None of them had ever seen a black man before, let alone one as muscular, well-built, and handsome. One chief tried to wipe the dirt off of York and was surprised to see that his skin was naturally darker. They had so much respect for these qualities that he was given the name Big Medicine. York would play with the Indian children and even danced around the fire after evening meals. Lewis and Clark learned that the Arikara were at war with the Mandan. The captains tried to convince them to abandon relations with the Sioux, make peace with the Mandan, and trade with the United States. The Arikara believed that peace could somehow be made with the Mandan, and one of the chiefs decided to go with them. Once again, the group was off. By October 24th, the Corps of Discovery had gone 1,600 miles from St. Louis. After five months of grueling travel, they were in sight of the Mandans. The villages had an impressive population of over 4,000 people, more than in St. Louis and Washington at the time. Unlike many tribes they encountered, they knew about the Mandans and had a better grasp on what to expect from them. Fortunately, they were arriving during the trading season, and the village was a bustling hive of activity. People from all nations and cultures mingled, talked, and bargained in this highly cosmopolitan village in the middle of the plains. Their location in what is now North Dakota had a lot to do with their being an epicenter for trade with white people from other countries as well as with other Indian nations. The Mandan were sedentary Plains Indians who hunted buffalo but mainly raised crops. Uh, they settled in villages of round earth lodges that could hold several families. They first settled along the Hart River but later moved their villages by the Missouri to, to by the Missouri after they formed an alliance with the Hidatsa. French-Canadian traders started visiting the Mandan in the late 1730s, and the British started coming after that. The Mandan developed a reputation as very sharp traders. After France ceded the Louisiana Territory to Spain in 1762, the Spanish tried to limit Mandan trading activity, but the Mandan would have nothing of that. They were open to all Europeans, Americans, and Indians who wished to do business, and that's what made their villages such a hive of activity. The Mandans proved to be extremely friendly, in stark contrast to the unruly Sioux. They kindly gave them permission to build a fort across the river from their villages. Winter was fast approaching, and the Corps needed shelter. After finding a suitable spot located in modern-day Washburn, North Dakota, they set to work constructing what became known as Fort Mandan. 
with 1,000 felled cottonwood trees before it was built in three weeks. It was designed in an unusual triangle shape to avoid having to spend time building an extra wall, and was equipped with two levels of living quarters, battlements, and storage. It would total 1,500 square feet in all, large enough to accommodate all the expedition members. With the fort built, they prepared for the winter. None of them could have anticipated how harsh it would be. December 7th saw the coldest temperature the expedition would experience, with Clark noting that the thermometer stood at 45 degrees below zero. The river froze so solid that herds of buffalo could walk across without breaking it. The Corps was also astonished to occasionally see the sight of a mandan sitting out in the prairie by a fire, wrapped in a buffalo robe and wearing only moccasins, antelope leggings, and shirt. Clark would write, The custom and habits of those people have inured them to bear more cold than I thought it possible for man to endure. Despite the extreme cold and the occasional bout of frostbite, Lewis and Clark kept the men busy. As military commanders, they had seen what happened to soldiers when they had nothing to do. They issued a court-martial for Private Thomas Howard for climbing the fort wall instead of calling for the watchman to open the gate. Because he had been seen by an Indian, who could have told others that it was easy to get inside, Howard was sentenced to 50 lashes. The court, however, persuaded Lewis to revoke the punishment. Remarkably, this single court-martial of the winter of 1804 was the last serious instance of misconduct for the duration of the expedition. By now, the group was no longer composed of young, rowdy frontiersmen prone to drunkenness and infighting, but of men with a sense of shared purpose, devotion to duty, and care for their fellow man. They had finally achieved a level of discipline needed to see them through whatever unknown dangers lay ahead. During the winter, both the Corps and the Mandans demonstrated great hospitality toward one another. Private John Shields, the Corps' blacksmith, made tools, weapons, and repairs in exchange for corn, which was the primary dietary item that winter. Lewis wrote that, The blacksmiths have proved a happy resource to us in our present situation. As I believe, it would have been very difficult to have devised any other method to have procured corn from the natives. The Mandans were extremely interested in all the technological wonders they had never seen before, such as the powderless air rifle, forge, and navigational tools. The Corps hunted for food when the air had warmed to zero degrees, and regularly came back with frostbite on their feet. In one case, Lewis, who was kept busy all winter tending to the men's medical ailments, had to amputate the toes of a young Mandan without anesthetic or a surgical saw. The Corps also enjoyed sexual relations with the Mandan women during the winter, which inevitably led to nearly every Corps member experiencing syphilis. Remarkably, there is no evidence that Lewis and Clark themselves ever slept with Indian women during the expedition. As military leaders, they had innumerable tasks and duties to keep them occupied, and no doubt wanted to set a higher standard of conduct. There were also great festivities between the groups. The Corps' one-eyed boatman, Pierre Cruzat, was deft with the fiddle and played for the Indians, who would in turn play music and dance for them. The groups communicated by making hand gestures to describe what they were talking about, and would often draw things on the dirt floor of the huts. In addition to the warmth of friendship during that cold winter, both groups learned and taught much to one another. Black Cat, 
one of the Mandan chiefs, enjoyed a particularly close bond with Lewis. When writing about him, Lewis said, This man possesses more integrity, firmness, intelligence, and perspicuity of mind than any Indian I have met with. Shortly after New Year's Day of 1805, the Mandans invited the Corps to their annual ceremony to summon the buffalo herds. They gathered in their finest ceremonial robes and began to smoke and dance. According to Mandan belief, sex was the way to transmit the power of their ancestors to the current generation. The wives of the warriors would engage in sexual intercourse with the hunters, followed by intercourse with their husbands. After the ceremony, the buffalo herds arrived a few days later. February 11, 1805, proved to be a fateful day. Toussaint Charbonneau was a French fur trader and interpreter who had aided the Corps in communications when they arrived. Fortunately, he had two Shoshone wives. The Shoshone were located near the Rocky Mountains out west, and Lewis and Clark rightly surmised that having one of the wives with them would prove to be useful in future trade and interpretation. Charbonneau was hired on as a permanent corps member, but he was hired less for his own skills and more for one of his wives. The wife the captains chose to go with them was named Sacagawea. Now what we know about Sacagawea, or Sacagawea, depending on which spelling and pronunciation you prefer, is that she was born somewhere around 1789 and was the daughter of a Lemhi Shoshone chief near the Rocky Mountains in what is Idaho today. Uh, when she was around 10 or 12, she and another Shoshone girl were kidnapped by a party of Hidatsa Indians and taken many hundreds of miles to the east. Somewhere near what is now Bismarck, North Dakota, the French-Canadian fur trapper Toussaint Charbonneau bought the two girls from the Hidatsa and they became his wives. Charbonneau and his wives were living with the Hidatsa near the Mandan villages when Lewis and Clark arrived in October 1804. On November 7th, they enlisted Charbonneau to be an interpreter for the expedition with the condition that Sacagawea accompany them. They had foreseen that she would be essential when the Corps of Discovery reached the Shoshone, whose help they would need, they knew they would need, to cross the Rockies. Sacagawea was pregnant with their first child and now in labor. Lewis was called on to aid in the delivery, which he described as slow and painful. It was suggested by the Indians that the rattle of a rattlesnake crushed into powder and drunk with water always helped a woman in labor. Lewis tried the method, and sure enough, Sacagawea gave birth shortly after. Though Lewis was not sure if this had actually worked, he was nonetheless relieved that it had gone well. The healthy baby boy was named Jean Baptiste, though he became more well known among the Corps by the nickname Pomp or Pompey. It was decided he could go with Sacagawea as the youngest member of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Though no one could have known it at the time, the presence of he and his mother would prove to be invaluable as they made their way to the Rockies and into unknown territory. Once the winter was finally over, the Corps knew that they would have to continue on foot. As they prepared to depart, a young man and woman asked the captains if she could go with them. Lewis and Clark wisely refused her, knowing that a beautiful woman without a husband would likely lead to jealousy, infighting, and possibly worse among the men. At the start of spring, the keelboat was prepared to go back to St. Louis. It was loaded with 108 botanical specimens, 
68 mineral specimens, and assorted animal skeletons and skins. Lewis even sent back some live animals, a prairie dog, four magpies, and a grouse hen. Lewis and Clark spent weeks at a time doing nothing but writing about all they had seen and discovered. It was an enormous task, yet hardly any detail escaped their pens. The captains were well aware that their records and journals were important to Jefferson and the nation, but they no doubt understood that future generations of Americans would benefit from their posterity. Along with their records, Clark managed to produce an incredibly accurate map of the land west of the Mississippi, which is widely considered today a masterpiece of cartography. York sent back a buffalo robe to his wife in Kentucky, and Lewis also sent letters to his mother. Two members of the Corps were also returning, John Newman and Moses Reed. In mid-October, both had spread words of mutiny among the Corps, and Reed had actually deserted before being reclaimed a few days later. Newman had tried to atone, but Lewis would not reinstate him. The Corps had also tried to gather as much information about the West as possible before departing. Lewis learned of a place called the Yellowstone, which he believed could become a valuable trading post for the United States. The Mandan told them about a great waterfall further upriver, but assured them they could get around it in half a day. Once they found the Northwest Passage, they expected to get to the Pacific and back to the Mandans before winter. Based on what they learned, it seemed that Jefferson's goal of finding, mapping, and claiming an all-water route across the nation would become a reality. Jefferson anticipated that he would see Lewis stride into Monticello no later than September of 1806. With the keelboat headed back to St. Louis, and the core discovery preparing to head into lands upon which no white man had ever trod, Lewis wrote in his journal, I can foresee no material or probable obstruction to our progress, and entertain therefore the most sanguine hopes of complete success. As to myself individually, I never enjoyed a more perfect state of good health. My inestimable friend and companion Captain Clark has also enjoyed good health generally. I could but esteem this moment of our departure as among the most happy of my life. The party are in excellent health and spirits, zealously attached to the enterprise and anxious to proceed. Not a whisper of murmur or discontent to be heard among them, but all act in unison and with the most perfect harmony. With such men I have everything to hope and but little to fear. April 7th, 1805. From the time they set off from St. Louis to their arrival in Fort Mandan, one can see how this small group began to learn and grow together. Despite not being given direct orders by Jefferson to make daily journal entries, Lewis and Clark nonetheless began what would become an indispensable piece of American heritage and identity. They knew that they were making history, and that future generations would benefit from their records for posterity. Though the men were in hostile territory, their curiosity about the land led them to take risks and explore. This curiosity led to discoveries that would prove to be invaluable to science and knowledge. With various exceptions, the Indian tribes and the Corps displayed great hospitality over the course of their times together. Despite their numerous differences, both groups knew that they could benefit and learn much from one another. Without the hospitality of the Mandans, the Corps would not have survived the harsh winter of 1804. By the time the winter ended, the Corps was a thoroughly disciplined unit of men on a mission. 
They were no longer individuals, but part of a cohesive unit whose devotion to duty would be tested time and time again. Due to Lewis and Clark's brilliant leadership, the level of discipline the men achieved could get them through any trial. And as we will see, the trials they would soon be facing would be unimaginable. This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by Scott Einig and edited by Jamie Adams. Featuring the voice talents of Ethan Thomas as Meriwether Lewis and Jared Thomas as William Clark. Special thanks to Larry Morris, author of The Fate of the Core and In the Wake of Lewis and Clark, and Alan Woodger, author of Encyclopedia of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Tune in next time for part three where the Corps of Discovery battles gigantic grizzly bears, discovers beautiful waterfalls, experiences one of American history's greatest chance encounters, and travels into the Rocky Mountains not knowing if they will make it out alive.